working drummer. Now kick it. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, serving up perspectives, experiences, and stories from ground-level working pros. Advice, tips, and secrets on how to build a career in the music business. Hey everyone, thanks for checking out Working Drummer Podcast. I'm Zach Albetta, and today I'm talking with Los Angeles drummer Jake Reed. Jake is the product of two legendary educators, John Von Olin and Peter Erskine, and has made a name for himself around L.A. doing a wide variety of studio and live work with Bill Holman, Bob Mincer, Bruce Foreman, Johnny Mandel, and many others. His main project right now is with Trio Kate, led by his wife, pianist and composer Kate Dunton. Trio Kate has just recorded its second album, and Jake has just released his first book, Jazz Drum Set Etudes Volume 1, which takes a new approach to developing jazz vocabulary on the drums. As always, you can find us at workingdrummer.net, where you can check out our past episodes and learn more about who we are and what we're about. You can also find a link to our Patreon page, or just go to patreon.com slash workingdrummer if you'd like to contribute a little money each month to help keep the podcast going strong. There are some great incentives there for donations at any level, including t-shirts and stickers, access to bonus content, a free lesson with one of our past guests, such as Ben Caesar or Carter McLean, or the chance to be interviewed on an episode of Working Drummer. You can donate as much or as little as you see fit, starting at $1 a month, and every donation at any level is greatly appreciated. I'd like to introduce you all to Crush Drums by telling you about one of their new lines. They are offering a brand new birch kit called the Sublime Birch Series. The Sublime Birch is 100% North American birch. Here's Crush's own Terry Platt talking about some of the cool features of the Sublime Birch Series. One thing that Crush has always done is on our 14-inch floor toms, we do a 14 by 13. It's got the fullness and depth of a 14 by 14 tom, but you can also, tuning range-wise, manipulate it to sound more like a 14 by 12 for the guys that, that enjoy that tone as well. It also includes the hoop saver claws that we developed where we actually have the rubber grommet under the claw protruding through the front of the claw. So if somebody grabs their drum set and sets it down, say, on concrete, you know, claw side down, it doesn't scratch up everything. And here's one of my favorite things about what Crush is doing. The bearing edges are cut a little more specifically for the drums. Our standard edge is a, you know, kind of a double 45, and the outside is rounded over so you get some more head contact with the shell. On the bass drum, you'll notice that the resonant side is even rounder than that and then the uh, batter side's going to be a little bit sharper just so you get that nice snap out of the kick but the resonant head really brings the whole shell into the equation of the tone you can also find a link to the new sublime birch series in our show notes and see the beautiful finishes and configurations they offer in the near future we've got much more to share in regard to crush drums and this dynamic company for now check out crush drums at crushdrum.com hope you enjoy my talk with Jake Reed. In preparing for this interview, I realized I, I don't know where the hell you're from. I don't know if you grew up in L.A. or if you came from somewhere else, so, so start me off there. Okay. I grew up in Kansas City. That's right. That's right. I did know that. We had that in common, and I forgot yes. that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, um, yeah, grew up in Kansas City, um, and then I went to school in Cincinnati for undergrad right and then I moved to LA and what school in Cincinnati was it the conservatory there With, University of Cincinnati is that where John Von Olin was yep yeah yeah that's where he was cool yeah 
Um, so what, what part of Kansas City did you grow up in? Uh, Parkville. Which is on the, uh, on the Missouri side, right? Right. Yeah, it's north of the river on the Missouri side. It's actually right near the river. Right. Like, I used to go running. Like, there's a trail right along the river, like, at a park that mm-hmm. I would go to almost every day in high school. And, yeah, it was cool. What, good, uh, good, good wh- town. What high school did you go to? Uh, Park Hill South. Park Hill South. And uh, I don't remember coming in contact with that school or anyone from it while I was there. I worked with a few different high schools while I was there. But, oh, nice. Um, but uh, what was, uh, you, you know, what, what brought you to the drums and what was the music program there like and um, how, did, how did it all start off? Well, I guess it first started off when I was super young. My dad had a... Um, my dad was a drummer in high school, mm-hmm. and so we had some drumsticks. And I remember when I was a kid, he had these. Uh, there, it was like you know, late '80s. So <laughs> he had like these um, drumsticks that were like hooked up to headphones. Uh-huh. So like whenever you hit the drumstick on anything, it would make the sound of a snare drum. <laughs> right, I remember those. I don't even know what they're called. I just remember them being yellow. And um, so I would walk around the house hitting things with those (laughs) so that's sort of how it started and then that's when uh mtv still played music videos so of course i thought that uh you know green day and nirvana and all those bands were the coolest thing of all time well they are i mean yeah (laughs) i I love it so yeah that's kind of that's kind of how that started and what was your your dad was a drummer in kansas city um, was he, was he professional? Was he a weekend warrior? What, what was, no, his? he, he was a, he played in like the high school band and that was about it. Okay. And then, you know, that's about as far as it went. So, but he was, he's always been into music. I remember we, you know, we'd be driving in the car and he'd be like, okay, listen to this song. This is a good drum song. It'd be like Frankenstein or something, you know, Edgar <laughs> Winter. like, okay, check out the drumming on this song. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> which is kind of hilarious uh i mean it's great i used to love listening to that but yeah. anyway yeah that's kind of where it started and then uh i studied with this guy named dennis rogers did you ever did you ever hear that name in yeah Kansas City? i don't know if i ever met him but i i remember hearing that name a few times yeah i so i started taking lessons with him when i was probably 10 years old and he was great because he kind of did drum set snare drum marimba xylophone everything right so i got a really well-rounded education from from that which i think was pretty cool yeah um so by the time you're going to college you're already kind of got the, got all this shit together yeah and actually i was at one point considering doing a percussion degree you know mm-hmm. not just a jazz degree but percussion right um, but I just decided I like playing drums, like drum set, you know? Yes. More. Yeah. I, I, I wonder, um, how my, how my life or career would be different had I made the same, uh, the same decision because, you know, not that you, not that I regret, uh, getting the, the classical degrees that I got, but, um, I was kind of faced with the same thing towards the end of high school. Um, it was like, you know, if you want to go to music school, if you want to go to college, then, you kind of got to at least have some of this orchestral stuff together. 
Um, right. And, yeah. uh, and you know, I, I not only got some of it together, but I just kind of dove into it headlong and, and put drum set on the back burner for, for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but you made the opposite decision. You, you focused, just decided to focus on drum set from the start. Yeah. I, I think that's kind of where I started out and I love learning how to play mallets and that definitely helped me a lot. Yeah. And I was super into like rudimental snare drumming. So, you know, I learned a lot about that early on. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I just always like playing drums. I like playing in bands, you know, just, just laying it down. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I guess the, the option that, that you had, um, going to Cincinnati, um, that I didn't have applying to the university of New Mexico was, uh, a jazz degree. Um, Right. I don't. I don't remember uh, University of New Mexico offering a jazz degree at that time. I think it was like if you want to study music in college, you got to get this classical degree. Um, but I think that that kind of like jazz, you know, specifically jazz degree, is becoming more and more common in colleges, isn't it? I think so. Yeah, I think so many colleges see the the benefit of offering that. That yeah. I mean, I think most schools have jazz degrees now. Yeah, yeah. So uh, John Von Olin has come up on this podcast uh, a, a number of times before, um, just as you know, uh, one of the great one of the great jazz drummers and educators of all time. Um, you know, ma- mainly as an educator. I mean, I think he's he's known amongst drummers as the great drummer that that he is. But I think his his legacy as an educator is. Um, you know, what, what he'll be remembered for, don't you? Yeah, I think so. Aside from being, you know, in the Stan Kenton band, I think that's kind of what he's mostly known for, but also as an educator. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. And, and what, um, what did he, (laughs) what did he do for you? Was it the kind of thing where you, you got to, you got to his studio and he stripped you down to nothing and, uh, or, or did you have some stuff to build on by that point? Uh, yeah, kind of actually. Yeah. So, okay. When I was in high school, I like, like I said, I worked a lot on rudimental drumming and, you know, like it was a very methodical approach to percussion, mm-hmm. you know? So I had a lot of, I had a lot of facility on the drums and not, like on a snare drum, just knowing how to play a lot of stuff, right. rudiments and whatnot. And Von Olin is he's the opposite of that like he always used to joke like oh I don't even know what a paradiddle is baby you know, like, <laughs> so um it was really great to study with him because yeah in in effect he did strip me down to nothing um you know we used to joke that he only had like three different lessons <laughs> like one lesson was how to play the ride cymbal one lesson was playing in a big band and the third lesson was how to play with brushes. <laughs> I mean, obviously, that's not all there is to it. It goes much deeper than that. Well, right. I mean, you know, each of those each of those things is like a lifelong pursuit in itself. <laughs> but yeah, honestly, the way that I learned from him most was not even in school. There there used to be a club in Cincinnati called the Blue Wisp, and uh, I would go there every Wednesday night. Well, as often as I could, mm-hmm. but I found myself there going there more often than not. 
And I would just sit at the end of the bar and listen to him uh, all night, play with the Bluest big band. Right. Um, and then on the break, they, you know, they would take like a half an hour break, <laughs> like a jazz, jazz break, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, that's kind of where my education came from with him. On the hang. The hang, yeah. yeah. And, you know, at school, he, he would... He never called it uh, directing or teaching. He he more called it coaching. That mm-hmm. was always his thing. Like, so he would coach a combo that you know you'd get to play in, or you know some other drummers would play in. Um, but he never really would tell you what to play. You know, he's one of those types of teachers. So he's a very. Uh, Sometimes I don't like to use this word, but he's a very organic <laughs> sort of teacher, right? Yeah. He was always, he was always, um, he always talks about playing naturally. Mm-hmm. You know, never, he always used to say, uh, this is, I always, I still think of this to this day. He would say, if you ever think of playing something, don't. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Um, so yeah, great piece of advice there yeah and it, you, wisdom. you said you said he never he never told you what to play but it, it seems like he was the kind of educator that would tell you he, i mean he would talk about what to do like what your role as the drummer in any sort in any situation was and and then le- kind of leave it to you or organically figure out with you how you wanted to do that thing uh yeah yeah pretty much like how you to know, set or- up a big band yeah, most of it turned into like I would see him do it, and then I would just try to imitate that. <laughs> right, right. You know, as well as I could. Uh, obviously, not doing it justice, but <laughs> yeah, that's kind of how it was a lot with him. Um, it was interesting. It, it was kind of the opposite of what you would think of having. You know, think of someone like Ed Sof. Yeah, who's like probably the most well-known drum set educator out there and how methodical everything is or john riley you know right when it comes to a a jazz education i mean all of i can't think of one drummer in college who probably hasn't used one of his books right yeah yeah so and von olin was like the opposite of that (laughs) right (laughs) but the funny part is you know those two drummers who i just mentioned who are great uh pedagogues they they know who von olin is right right you know yeah were they students of von olin at one point i'm not sure i can't say for sure yeah i do know that uh well i okay for instance one book that i have that i (laughs) it it called the big band primer Mm -hmm. that it's an ed sof book he he cites john von olin as like one of the great big band drummers to check out in right. that book, you right. know, which is, so that's one example of that. Um, you know, John Riley played in Woody Herman's band after, not directly after Von Olin, but yeah, you know, just, and it seems like those guys as educators, like even, even though in, in many ways they're, you know, more structured and more regimented than, than maybe Von Olin was, they, they still kind of, um, 
are are in are in the von Olin tradition of helping a player figure out what that player wants to do, not telling them what to play. Totally, but yeah, yeah, all the way, yeah, yeah. And al- along those lines leads us to another thing I wanted to talk with you about is Erskine, um, because mm-hmm. you're you're I think the th- maybe third Erskine student that uh, that we've talked to. I talked to Jamie Tate and Dan Schnell. Um, and there might've been right. a couple others here and there, but, but those are the two that leaps to mind. Um, but, uh, so you went, you went from Cincinnati to, to USC to study with Erskine, correct? Correct. And, and what, uh, what was your Erskine experience? We've, <laughs> we've gotten a couple Erskine experiences on the, on the podcast oh, here. So what was yours? Uh, well, first, um, Peter, Peter's, uh, he really helped me out a lot, you know, cause I came, okay. So going to school in Cincinnati was like a very well-rounded jazz education, mm-hmm. like meat and potatoes, just like you would think of Cincinnati is like a Midwest kind of city. It's a lot like Kansas city actually. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you've, if you've ever been there. I've but... driven through there. I haven't spent any time. It looks like a cool little city. Totally. Yeah. So coming to L.A. and studying with Peter, he, you know, maybe like you've I think I listened to the Jamie Tate podcast and I was like nodding my head the whole time. Like, yep. <laughs> <laughs> like yeah. Uh-huh, yeah. Uh-huh. And even, you know, Schnelli's. I was like, oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. But honestly, like I love Peter and he kicked my butt. Yeah when I first started studying with him, like, how can you not play this? Or like, how do you not know how to do, you know, that kind of thing. Right. Right. Um, those seem to be two common themes among Erskine students. I love that man. And he kicked my ass. <laughs> yep. It was, and, and I'm totally grateful for it. Yeah. Um, so a ver- very much a, a tough love style of teaching. Yes, for sure. Yeah. And I, th- I think that's really important. I think, especially, uh, I think how a lot of people learn, now is like i think there tends to be a lot of uh i hate to generalize but you know just oh it's okay you can't do that it's all it's all good you know right and peter would just be like why can't you do this <laughs> <laughs> the hell is wrong with you like, yeah <laughs> i remember okay so here's one example just to like tell a quick little story um so we were working on a lot of times peter's lessons were like okay Here's a professional situation that I've been in that kicked my ass as a professional. Right. So he makes that into a drum lesson. Right. Which is kind of his style of teaching. Every, I, I realized that later on, at least in my, maybe Jamie and Dan have different, uh, you know, gleam different things from this. But yeah, it, it always seemed like he was trying to teach me something that he learned the hard way. Right, right. Um, but this one example is we were, we were, working on i think it was like a jingle or something kind of like a medium tempo like swing jingle right with like trumpet backgrounds like a big band short big band thing uh-huh and the problem is in this chart there were no there was no information there wasn't like here's what the trumpets are playing or here's what the sax you know what i mean just mm-hmm. basically a bunch of slash marks but the problem is you as the drummer you have to be able to just do it right yeah you like make this sound good it's your job right um so I did a few takes, a few passes at it in our lesson, and 
like by the third time still just didn't have all the rhythms memorized from mm-hmm. listening, mm-hmm. right? Because it wasn't written in the chart. And I was like trying to write them down as quickly as I could. Like, oh my God, I got to do this. And, uh, you know, of course, Peter just sat down and did it uh, <laughs> perfectly. And I'm like, Peter, you know, how, uh, he, first of all, he's like, he's like, Jake, how do you not have this by the third time? Like, uh-huh. how did, how do you not have this together? And I'm like, I don't know. I mean, it's just, it's hard. There's nothing written down. I'm trying to memorize stuff real fast. And I'm like, well, how do you do it so fast? And he's like, because I pay attention. <laughs> and I, and I just realized like, Oh, I think that like his, the way that he pays attention is just on a completely different level from how I pay attention. Right. You know, his attention to detail and his ability to just, sort of uh soak up everything that's happening in the moment yeah. the musical moment is yeah. at such a high level that sort of uh kind of put me in a different space after that like mm-hmm. okay if i really want to do this if i really want to be a working drummer <laughs> <laughs> i really got to get yeah. this together yeah. you know you get paid five dollars every time you say working drummer in the podcast yeah, yeah. so working drummer. <laughs> rack them up baby <laughs> <laughs> anyway that's one lesson just paying attention which i don't you know i think most of the time we think yeah i am paying attention but i think to deeply be immersed in the musical moment is something that takes practice and yeah experience yeah really get it reminds me of something in, in Peter's book that he talked about uh, when, when he had first joined Weather Report and was kind of getting heady about, you know, things that were happening on stage or, or how he was performing or whatever. And, and Jocko, like, pulled him aside and said, don't think, concentrate. Exactly. Which was another, that's a classic Erskine, right. you know, lesson. Uh, stop thinking so much and concentrate. Right, know? right. <laughs> So, like, when, when you say, uh, you know, paying attention is something that you, you had to practice, um, d- did that have to do with changing the way you listen to music, either as kind of a casual listener or in a professional situation, like the one that you were simulating in the lesson? Yeah, I think it did. It, I, I think it's the kind of thing where, okay, think about this. How many times have you been on a gig and there's, like, a television on in the background? Oh, God. You know what I mean? Which yeah. we all hate. Yeah. But it's like, how often do you find yourself just like, oh, look, oh, the Dodgers are on TV or whatever, you know, <laughs> right, right. like during your gig and you're like, oh, and you're like, oh, crap, oh, you know? Yeah. Um, that sort of thing. So just always being there mm-hmm. like 100 percent. Right. You know? Right. And, and yeah, I think I think the thing is, it's just you just have to start thinking that way. It's not it's not something you can like practice doing. It's like you just start doing it. It's just a. It's kind of just changing your outlook. Right. In the, in the beginning, it's kind of a willpower thing. It's like you, you have to kind of force yourself to be present. Um, right. And, and you know what's funny, though, is... Uh, I, and probably Jamie would... I, I think of Jamie especially uh, would, would uh, agree with this. Is like, I can't tell you the number of times I've been on a gig or a session or just something... Where I'm like, man, I'm so glad Peter kicked my butt on this one thing. Because yeah. now, you know, because that lesson, like where none of the, none of, nothing was written down, like none of the parts were written in the chart. Right. Like that's happened 
It happens almost all the time. Oh, of you course. Know? Like every big band book is just full of charts with nothing in them. <laughs> yeah, but I'm talking like something you've never seen. And it's like, okay, we have to record this right now and yeah. make it sound perfect. Right. You know, uh, that happens all the time. And having that sort of just focus of, okay, we're going to do this. You know, having that sort of lesson from him, just that's that one example. It happens all the time, though. Right. Um, and it sounds like it wasn't it wasn't a matter of like figuring out a trick. It wasn't a matter of saying like exactly. if I listen to this one specific instrument, if I do this you know one little thing, it's it's widening your uh, kind of musical or aural bandwidth to be able to you know train yourself to take in more information quickly. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. It's basically just it's basically just making you. Uh, a more aware musician. I mean, he has that book called time awareness, you know, it's right. Like, that's kind of what it's about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Coming more aware of what's happening right then. Right. And Instead of like, Oh, this is something I'll practice later. It's like, no, you do it now. So where do you go to find a treasure trove of information about vintage drums, custom drums, and legendary drummers? Not so modern drummer.com. Since 1988, Not So Modern Drummer is an institution dedicated to researching and documenting the history of modern drums, the art of drum building, and the legendary drummers who play them. The writers and contributors are some of the top vintage and custom drum experts from around the world. Not So Modern Drummer serves as an online gathering place and marketplace for the worldwide community of drummers who buy and sell, collect, preserve, and play these instruments. It also hosts drum-related events that are attended by drummers from all over the world. This website is easy and fun to explore, and the monthly digital magazine subscription is free. So check out NotSoModernDrummer.com. It's another thing that's, that's come up quite often on, on the podcast is, is um, kind of just the value of jazz training, um, whether it's with somebody like Erskine or Von Olin or, you know, somebody less well-known, just, just putting yourself in... Um, in those kind of situations where your musical antenna has to be up and, uh, and really sensitive, um, and to be able to react really quickly to things. I think, I think that kind of training, even if you don't end up becoming a jazz drummer, um, really makes you a, a, a more valuable musician in, in pretty much any context. For sure. Yeah. I, yeah. All the way. Yeah. Uh, I get, you know, I get students, who come to me and they just want they want to get better at drums and I'm like, well, we should you know get into some jazz because mm -hmm. that's kind of I don't know I I totally I think that you know I think the drum set came from the jazz era mm -hmm. the way it's set up the, you you know all this stuff but maybe some of the listeners don't uh, <laughs> you know, so it's it's that's why it's really good to learn how to play jazz if even if you don't become a jazz musician just kind of immersing yourself in in the genre for a while and yeah and and i think a lot of drummers um you know kind of wade into it from from the technical standpoint you know they get a couple of books right and they learn how to play you know jazz time on the ride and learn some comping and and you know maybe do some transcribed solos mm -hmm. and stuff um but i where i think i mean all that is definitely valuable you know from the technical drummy standpoint of things but but i think the the real value of jazz is 
putting yourself in in live situations. What I mean, it can just be a jam session at somebody's house. You know, it doesn't have to be in a club for an audience. Um, but just that always you, makes it more fun. <laughs> <laughs> it does. It does. If not more lucrative. Um, <laughs> Uh, but you know, just just putting yourself in that kind of improvisational situation with other humans, um, and and giving yourself right. a chance to kind of apply all that technical stuff in in an actual live setting, right? Um, really, kind of uh, teaches you a lot about what you can and can't do real quickly. Totally teaches a lot about being a human too. Yeah, just you know, respecting the space of others. Um, you know, not playing too loud, mm-hmm. uh, not always playing everything you know how to play, <laughs> you know? Right, right. Like letting somebody else speak. Yeah, yeah. Not interrupting. <laughs> <laughs> There's so many things, you know, that, that goes into it that you just, yeah, you just learn it by, you know, doing it yeah. on the gig. Yeah. Or in a, in a jam session. Right, in somebody's, in somebody's uh, garage. In somebody's basement, yeah. <laughs> Um, so was, uh, was the decision to go to USC, um, driven by a desire to study with Erskine, a desire to become an LA drummer? Um, was it happenstance? How did, how did that move come about? Okay. Yeah. So I guess the year was 2000. No, um, (laughs) I did this program called the Henry Mancini Institute. Okay. Yeah. Which I believe Schnell, Dan Schnell did like I, a couple of years before me or maybe think, the year before I did it. I think you're right, yeah. Yeah, so it's this program that they, at the time they had at UCLA, you would come to LA for a month during the summer and basically play in orchestras all day and jazz bands and combos, um, different, you, you get to go to like, you know, Warner Brothers and record on their soundstage and you get a lot of great just experience that way yeah it's like a summer program that you have to audition for right and peter peter was one of the instructors there okay uh so and of course i had always loved peter's drumming like i mean i remember in high school hearing him on weather report stuff and just thinking like wow that guy is so good like yeah i want to play like that someday yeah you know and yeah, that kind of thing. And then and just, it was to, like, just to interrupt you, like the, the thing about seeing Peter and hearing Peter, it's like uh, there are other drummers where you see him play and you're like, whoa, I want to learn that lick or I want to learn that groove or whatever. But w- I, I had the same experience. The first time I saw Peter play in person, it wasn't about anything he played specifically. It was about how he played. Totally. I, it wasn't it wasn't I want to play that. It was I want to play like that. I want to be that. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) Totally. Yeah. So it's kind of like that. And so getting to, you know, from high school thinking that way when I was like 18 years old, like, oh man, like Peter's so great. And then getting to study with him, I was like, okay, this guy is even greater than I thought. And then (laughs) I don't like put him on a pedestal or anything, but you know, just, he should be, man. He's he's one of the godfathers. Like just totally idolizing him as a younger adult. Yeah. And then, and then, kind of thinking like okay well i'm gonna be done with college like undergrad college uh what do i want to do with my life after this because that's always i get so many students who are like okay well i'm i'm almost done with school like what am i gonna do now right and so i was like oh of course go to more school (laughs) (laughs) no but i i was i the reason like to answer your question was i came to la because i wanted to study with peter yeah so that's what i did yeah uh 
I was fortunate enough to get, you know, get into USC and, um, it was kind of, okay, this is a, this is an interesting story. Quick story. Um, this is like one of those like universe stories. Like <laughs> I know people can't see me, but I'm waving my arms around like, ooh, right, like right. universe in a, in a uh, semi mystical fashion. Yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, so when I was a kid, I, and I took lessons with Dennis Rogers in Kansas city, mm-hmm. whom we talked about earlier. His teaching style was to teach in group lessons. Huh. So from the time I was like 10 years old to I grad to when I graduated high school, I was always in a group class, like five or six drummers in one class, all learning like synchronized. It was like synchronized drum set playing, you know, or <laughs> synchronized mallet playing. Like, well, let's all play our major scales together at the same time. Right. Um, so that's how I learned from an early age. Well, fast forward to getting into USC. It just so happened that I, you know, became Peter's teaching assistant. Hmm. And at that same, that same year was the first year they started, uh, a drum set class at USC for basically non majors. They, they were, they were starting a pop, a pop music, popular music major, right. You know, degree at USC. And one of the classes is, Oh, you have to take this drum set class. So like, lo and behold, I'm the teaching assistant that gets picked that one year to like, okay, you're going to teach this class. Right. It was me and one other guy, Brian Carmody, who you, yeah, I know he's great. Another great drummer. in town. Um, it was like, okay, you're going to teach this drum set class that has eight drum set, eight electronic drum sets, in uh-huh. it, and you're the, you're going to be the teacher. So I was like, what? Like, <laughs> I'm going to teach this. It was just like I had learned when I was a kid. You know, it was like the same thing. So I sort of, like, art instinctively knew how to teach all teach that way. You know, right? It wasn't like a one on one kind of thing. So I always thought that was kind of an interesting, uh, yeah, right, right place, right time, right guy. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So it's like, well, I couldn't have planned that any better. <laughs> uh, yeah. Anyway, so I was really grateful to be able to come out to L.A. under those circumstances. And yeah. Uh, and so when you when you began your time at USC, like, were you looking were you looking beyond your time there and, and saying, like, I could I could make a run of it in L.A. I want to break into that scene. Or were you just kind of focusing on I'm going to spend this time with Erskine and then we'll take it from there. Yeah, it was kind of like that. Like, I just wanted to study with Erskine and learn as much as I could. Right, right. Uh, and it sort of just naturally turned into, oh, I started getting called for gigs. And then uh, yeah, met, this, you- met this guitar player, Bruce Foreman, who's a great jazz guitarist who, who I still play with. Uh, we're getting ready to, we just finished an album, mm-hmm. you know, that I, a duo album duo uh yeah wow to- totally and cool. then some of the tracks have uh jay bellarose came in and played with us too so it's, it kind of turned into a trio at some point yeah but yeah <laughs> but uh yeah so it's just like things that i couldn't have possibly planned but bruce is one of the professors at usc guitar teacher there mm-hmm. and um started playing with him a lot and then that turned into playing in his band and um yeah, you know, so, so you, it just, just sort of it, it just sort of natural. I didn't think about it too much. It was kind of like the Von Olin thing. Like, just I let everything ha- happen naturally. Like, 
Right. I didn't try to force anything. Right. And I think, I think US, it, I USC think and, and some other schools in LA are, are really great about, you know, bridging the gap between academia and, and the pro world. Um, totally. You know, UMKC is great about that in Kansas City. It sounds like the conservatory was great about that in Cincinnati. Um, and it's something we've talked about a lot on the podcast, you know, choosing a school in, in a city you want to work in because it's likely yep. it's likely that that school is going to have faculty who are working in the city and who are going to send you to sub forum and right. um just uh so so yeah talk about kind of the first the first moves you made as you were as you were coming out of grad school and making that transition from USC to to uh <laughs> LA at large yeah um well it was pretty smooth to begin with um so I did a master's at USC, which took two years. And toward the end of that second year, uh, I decided I wanted to do a doctorate as well. It's a DMA at Doctor of Musical Arts uh -huh. at USC. And because I basically I was like, man, I've been here for two years. I went by really fast. Yeah. It would be great to study with Peter even more. Right. You know? <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, I stayed for an extra three years after that. So total of five years but you know by the time i got into that doctorate it was like i was already working a fair amount in town yeah uh just with like bruce's band or whomever mm -hmm. um uh toward the toward the end of that i also started playing in bill holman's big band so uh i was already like working a fair amount by the end of grad school mm -hmm. total grad like the fifth year of grad school yeah um, so it was kind of a smooth transition. It was actually kind of weird because it was like doing a doctorate is so much work. I don't if you ever talked to anyone who has done a doctorate in, in musical arts or in jazz uh, I'm from USC or any of the other. I mean, I think no. USC's program is probably relatively tame compared to like, <laughs> some other, like, like UCLA's like ethnomusicology program. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like that seems pretty intense. But. So by the end of all of it, I'm like, whoa, like I have all this extra time. What do I do now? <laughs> <laughs> right. So uh, it, was, it was cool, though. It was pretty smooth. A couple of the groups that I, I remember you playing with um, and that are listed on your website are uh, the Vibrometers and Cowbop. Oh, yeah, for uh, sure. Are, are they both still active? Yep. Wow. Uh, sort of, I should say. Yeah. Uh, I, I was in Cowbop for for four or five years and then kind of took a break from that for a couple more years. And, um, yeah, but every once in a while we will do a gig and, uh, it's kind of, you know, it kind of went on the back burner for Bruce as well. It's Bruce Foreman's band for anyone who's yeah. listening. Um, but yeah, we'll play every once in a while and, uh, it still happens. And, uh, same with vibrometers, you know, we're still Is it playing. vibrometers or vibrometers? See, that's always been a band uh, <laughs> discussion, a, a point, a point of, uh, contention, bone of, bone is, of contention. Uh, how do we, what is this called? Vibrometers, vibrometers. So, yeah, we, and at one point we also thought of changing the name of the band to, just to avoid any confusion. Right. No, um, I, I like it even with the confusion. Um, I think we just say vibrometers. Okay, cool. Yeah. At least that's what I say. Uh, so, so with with Cowbop, um, it's it's this kind of smashing together of of jazz and uh, like country western swing kind of thing. 
Um, and, and if that wasn't, you know, memorable enough, uh, it also has uh, Pete Chrisley, who I just love. And it's one of the reasons I wanted to talk about that group is because any, anybody who isn't hip to, to Pete Chrisley uh, really, really should be. Right. Um, so Pete was on one of the records. I think he, he was like a guest artist on one of the records we did. Mm-hmm. Um, but he wasn't actually in the band all the time. I thought there he was, was kind of a regular member. but He I'd... would sub in the band. There was another great saxophonist, uh, David Wise, who played in the band. Okay. And before there was a saxophone, there was actually uh, a, a fiddle player. Uh-huh. Uh, this guy, Phil Salazar, who lives up in uh, Ventura. He's a great great violinist huh. fiddle player um but yeah pete pete would sub with cowbop uh you know whenever our normal guy couldn't make it so that's all uh, yeah pete's pete's great you actually you played with his band a lot too right yeah a little bit not not a yeah. ton but yeah i did some some dates with him while I was um there. yeah pete's a trip though i mean yeah. what a great what a great player yeah and so i mean he, he, you know when i first started playing in holman's band he was still he was still playing tenor in holman's band so we got to play in that band a lot together too <laughs> he was such just, a riot in a big band man uh yeah you know the trumpets would the trumpets would just lose it on some unison line and chris lee would turn around and be like ah it sounds like a fire at a pet shop <laughs> <laughs> uh, so good so Pete yeah. Chrisley, for for those who don't know, Pete Chrisley is is a, a tenor saxophonist uh, and and woodwind player in general. Probably most famous for recording with Steely Dan, he played the tenor sax solo on Deacon Blues. He's Mister Deacon Blues. He is Mister Deacon Blues. Um, but uh, for anybody interested in a in in some some great tenor sax playing and just a really unique voice on the instrument, check out Pete Chrisley. Yeah, and Bernard Purdy plays drums on that track. So, Indeed. You know. There's of, that. Of course. Always a good call. Yeah. Spe- <laughs> speaking of working drummers. Oh, I owe myself $5. Look at that. Oh. <laughs> um, yeah. Oh, I also, I just thought of another story. Just a quick little interesting story that ties together Calbop and school. Yeah. A little bit. Doing, yeah, yeah. doing a doctorate. So, um, and this ties into your other question about transitioning mm-hmm. out of school. Um, okay, so Calbop. Um, the drum set that I had to play in that band, the, the one rule for that band was you can't use toms. <laughs> okay, so I don't know if any drummers out there have ever tried to play a gig without toms, but it's interesting the first time around because you can't just play stuff that you've worked out ahead of time. Right. You know, uh, we call it the truth kit. <laughs> you know, it's like ride cymbal, hi-hat, snare drum, bass drum. That's yep. all you get. Yep. Uh, but the interesting thing about the Cowbop kit is that the bass drum was a 28 by 10 marching band bass drum, like an old Ludwig that Bruce just like found at a high school or something. Oh my God, that's great. Yeah. And so he's like, okay, you're going to play in this band and uh, you can't use toms, um, but make, you know, make music out of this uh contraption right this, this trap kit you know right. so i was like okay so <laughs> so you, i had to like develop my own sort of vocabulary on this kit like how do, how do you make this collection of sounds musical right right which is like that's a great lesson in itself right there yeah how do you make music out of this trap kit that's not a traditional four-piece you know drum kit that we would play bebop on or 
swing or big band music or whatever. Right. So I started developing all of this vocabulary between snare drum and bass drum. Sort of like, uh, I don't know if you ever check out, like another guy I got to study with a little bit was Jeff Hamilton. Sure. And he, he always talks about, I, I just, it was like, boom, it like popped in my head when in Cowbop, like, oh, you know, you can actually create lines that, um, when I say lines, I mean like, that's almost sound like a horn line or something. Yeah, yeah. If you vary, you know, by varying your dynamic levels, this is getting really dorky now for all you drummers, but that's what this is, right? We're dorking out, yes. <laughs> We're dorking out. Uh, you can create, you know, just by varying your dynamics, um, and you have a low drum and a high drum, uh -huh. so low and high, right? Yeah. It almost, it starts to resemble... A melody, but we're not. It's not really a melody because we're playing a non-pitched instrument, so it's not really like we're playing melodies on the drums, like Ari Honig or something. Right, right. <laughs> Which is amazing, by the way. It's bonkers. I can't even. Yeah. Yeah, but we're <laughs> playing something that resembles a melodic statement, mm -hmm. right? By varying our dynamics and using accents, um, which is just to go back to Ed. So sorry, I'm like getting on a tangent now, but. Um, no, we're know, coming around. He, he always makes. I, I've always heard that drummers at UNT they have, and someone can email me and tell me if I'm right or wrong. But you know, <laughs> you have to play the Omni book, which is the Charlie Parker book with all the solos and melodies. Play the Omni book on the drum set. Oof. Right. Yeah. So, and and Peter used to talk about this all the time too. With just you know, by varying your dynamics and accents and everything, you can actually make you know make what sounds like a horn player. On the drum set, right? Yeah, yeah. So I had to, and I was actually like in a band where only the only thing I had was a snare drum and bass drum and cymbals to make something like that happen. Yeah, right. Um, so it's like kind of strips it down even more than just a four-piece kit. But to tie that into USC, um, one of my major fields of study, uh, in addition to you know, jazz studies or whatever was, uh, j uh music education. Mm -hmm. So one summer I did a, um, an independent study for, for, a you know, one of the music ed, ed classes where I wrote a drum set book. I wrote a drum set etude book. Is that the one that became the one that just got published? Yes. Wow. Exactly. That's, but that's how it all started was because I played in Cowbop, which was, a band in which I only had snare drum and bass drum, right? To right, begin with, to right. make melodies out. Um, and then I was, and then I was in school at the same time. Like, oh, I have, I could do this project. Oh, why don't I write a book? What? Let's see, what kind of book would I want to write if I had to write a drum set book? And my whole thing is, I mean, as much as I love every drum set book I've worked out of, the one thing, the one fault that I've always found in most drum set books is that they all rely on teaching patterns or licks or coordination, yeah. you know, independence, think of like the new breed or John Riley's books, right, which are right. all great. I'm not, not dissing them at all. I yeah. love those books. John Riley, if you're listening, I love your book. <laughs> love all of them. Yeah. All those books, right They're, They all rely on patterns and that sort of thing. They, they kind of neglect in a way, which is rightfully so it's, it's hard to teach someone how to play with dynamics and, phrasing mm -hmm. uh, and not to rely on licks which is another thing that peter used to talk about all the time not playing licks right not relying on voc uh preconceived vocabulary uh -huh. right 
so in this book that I wrote for this summer class, you know, like independent study, the whole thing is etudes, jazz drum set etudes. Right. Um, and like the first part of the book is all snare drum, like quarter notes and eighth notes. Mm-hmm. Simple melodies, trying to make them swing at different dynamics. <laughs> I feel like simple melodies intertwining. <laughs> <laughs> Spinal tap reference. Um, anyway. Um, so yeah, second, second part of the book. Only snare drum and bass drum. Same etudes uh, orchestrated between snare drum, and ba- snare drum and bass drum. Right? Uh-huh. The third part finally incorporates the full drum set. Same right. Same set of etudes, but just orchestrated around the full drum set. But that's where the whole thing came from. So, you know, as I was graduating from USC, it was like I also was getting this book basically published through Alfred Music. I just gave Dave Black, the editor, like a like basically a, a Xerox version of it that I that yeah. I made. You yeah, know, yeah. I just like went to Kinko's and put it together and gave it to him at NAM, and right. then it didn't hear, didn't hear anything for like three or four months. So I was just like, oh, well, I guess he didn't like it. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <And> then, <laughs> Good try, Jake. Good try. Oh, well, uh, just move on. Okay. <laughs> but then he like emailed me out of nowhere. He's like, hey, I really like this. I think, you know, it's different than any other drum set book, which yeah. was my intent. Yeah. You know, and he's like, I want to publish it. So I was like, yay, cool. Yeah, yeah. So, so I was, I was going to ask, I mean, you, you explained it beautifully, but I was, I was going to ask what, what made you, like what hole did you see in the in the catalog of drum set books that that needed to be filled and it's it's that uh it's it's melodicism and and just giving shape to a phrase without um giving shape to a a, a phrase before you worry about the drum setness of it before you worry right. about distributing it around the drums or dividing it up between kick and snare or whatever um just learn learn how to make a phrase you know melodic and contoured just on the snare Right, and a lot of that comes from just to like get technical for a second. It doesn't really come from rudiments, mm-hmm. in my in my view. It's like it's not, it's not like oh, we're gonna play paradiddles and then we're gonna make music out of paradiddles. Right. It's like if you know how to play paradiddles and double stroke rolls and single stroke rolls, you can use them, combine them, in different sticking patterns that will make something sound melodic. Mm-hmm. Right. So. It's the intent. It's like first you think of the music you're trying to create, and then those rudiments, you know, present themselves. Right. In in those melodic statements. Right. Those, those music statements. Yeah. Um, does that make sense? It makes total sense. And and you know, it, it, all throughout my uh, education as a musician, whether it was on the drum set or or in uh, classical settings. Um, I was I was bored and turned off and uh, just kind of offended by um, exercises that um, that I thought were just exercises, you know. Um, I a, a lot of times I was given exercises and and um, not uh, not given uh, you know an actual musical context in which they could be applied or, or useful and and I saw it as um, you know, of course, I could have taken it upon myself to <laughs> to do that work and, and whatever. But I just saw all these exercises as extra work. Like if I'm going to use two out of these ten, what am I doing with these other eight? Why am I working on them? If I'm never going to play this in music, 
you know, what is the point of learning it? Why not, why not approach it from the other end? Why not approach it from start with a piece of music and learn the techniques required to make that music happen? Um, exactly. Right. Okay. Yeah. Which I guess there's, you know, I guess the answer is, yeah, you do both things. You work on it both ways. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I always just thought like, well, how did all of my favorite drummers learn how to do this? They weren't learning out of these books. They had to like play music and figure it out. Right. right. So right. They they, they, of, they they were playing with horn players and pianists and bassists, and they had to learn how to make their drums fit with those other sounds. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of sometimes where I think that younger drummers fall short is they're trying to play their stuff that they've practiced and it doesn't really fit in it doesn't it doesn't fit in with the musicians they're playing with Mm -hmm. right yeah because they're not because they're not listening (laughs) right i mean right if you were listening and and you understood how to react to what's happening around you then yeah it would work right yeah that's what logic would tell us right (laughs) and you know going going back to erskine just every everything he plays is you know, uh, when when he does something that really blows my mind, it's not like, wow, that was an incredible lick. It's, wow, that was a beautiful phrase. Wow, that was an amazing moment. You know, it's that kind of shit. Right. And that's one of the first lessons I had with him that I've, I'm sure he teaches a lot of students is, okay, I want you to improvise on the drum set, but you don't get to use any licks. Don't play any licks. <laughs> if you think of playing a lick, don't play it. Which right. is like what Bon Olin used to say. Right, right. If you think of playing something, don't. Yeah. So you have to improvise something on the drum set that is not lick oriented. Yeah. And that's hard, <laughs> right? man. Don't play power triplets. No paradiddles. <laughs> no paradiddle diddles. We all love the paradiddle diddle. Uh-huh. Don't play it. Right, right. <laughs> Can you make music that way? Mm-hmm. That was the point of the exercise. Yeah. Yeah. And what did you find when when you were challenged with that? What do you find it did to your playing? It opens everything up because the whole point of that is to get you to break out of playing habitually. So breaking mm-hmm. the habit of playing from licks. Yeah. It it puts your mind it connects your mind and your hands and your feet. Connects your mind with your body instantaneously, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um I also found I, it, it forces me to just strip down. Um, totally. You leave more space. And, yeah. You play with more space. You sound, it's like you automatically sound like a musician. <laughs> you don't yeah. just sound like the guy who hangs out with musicians. Right, you know? right. <laughs> On the drum set. Yes. Yeah. Uh, that's a great way important. of putting it. You immediately yeah. sound like a musician. That's, that's cool. Yeah. Uh, well, because you're thinking musically, you're not thinking drummistically. Right. Right. So th- it I mean, it takes some practice for sure. It takes, it just takes doing it a lot. Right. And that I, you know, I, I imagine is, is kind of where, where your book is coming from. If you're talking about learning musical phrases just on a snare drum to start out with, like you don't, you don't have any drumistic things to worry about. You just have this musical phrase. Right. Well, and the other, uh, the other place that that book came from was I had a lot of you know, USD classical guys that would come up to me and say, hey, I got to do this orchestral audition coming up, but I have to play jazz drum set. How do I do that? I'm like, oh, <laughs> you just want to learn how to play jazz in like one lesson? Like, yeah, sure. come on uh, in. <laughs> yeah, come on in. I'll, show you. I'll you know, whip you into shape. Right. 
So it was like, okay, well, how can I teach? How can I teach these guys to like sort of sound convincing as a jazz drummer? Like when they go into an orchestral audition and they got to like, can you just play a, a swing groove convincingly? Uh huh. Or can you can you trade like one thing they all had to do is like trade fours. Can you trade fours with yourself and sound convincing? It's like, well, what do you do? Like, you're going to teach them, like, hey, go transcribe some Philly Joe and just play that. No. Like, right. There's so much more to it than that. And yeah. it, honestly, it takes a lifetime of study to really get it. Right. Yeah. So, so I'm just thinking, like, okay, well, what's like, can we just approach this from a musical perspective rather than a drumistic perspective? Not that drumistically, drumistic stuff is not musical, but just. Well, it, it, approach, it can right? be very not musical. <laughs> let's, exactly, Let's yeah. be honest. <laughs> Play some inverted flam taps uh, around the kit and, uh, you know. <laughs> as, I don't know. As my, as my last guest, Gerald French, put it, all chops, no gravy. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Another one of the main reasons I wanted to talk to you was uh, your lovely wife, Kate Dunn, who mm-hmm. is a pianist extraordinaire and uh, uh, who who leads a trio that you play drums in. Um, and I obviously want to talk about you know that music and that band, um, but I also want to talk about uh, just how um, being married to a musician and and having your kind of musical careers intertwined. Um, how you, how you navigate that because, um, we, you know, on the podcast, we like to talk about, you know, family relationships, marriage, spouses, and, and how that can, uh, hinder or help, uh, your career. So, uh, so how, how have you guys, uh, gone through that in your, in your careers and in your lives together? Boy, that's a deep question. Um, I, I know, man. Hey, yeah, this is the sensitive part of the uh, yes. Inter- this would be the, the touchy feely portion. <laughs> okay, <laughs> this well, is first what separates all, us from I'd hit that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> which is also an excellent po- podcast. <laughs> I've listened to so many of those and to. so many of these. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we're all in this uh, together, man. <laughs> hey, you know, on that note, what other instrument? just openly this is something peter always would say yeah. what other instrument openly shares their secrets with each other mm, i feel like, like drummers bassists, i feel like bassists do but i think they do maybe i don't know well i, don't I mean know drummers this. we just get together it's like hey how'd you do that oh it's just this okay right. yeah right yeah i think other other musicians talk shop a lot and like yeah you know pianists and saxophonists talk harmony and all that shit but i think in terms of like the actual <laughs> the actual secrets like we're all just like yeah it's just it's like this yeah <laughs> so it is an incredible community that we have drummers indeed. you know indeed um so okay first of all kate and i met in grad school at, at USC. usc okay so we were in this thing together getting a doctorate together mm-hmm Right. We're in this together. Yeah. So um, that's kind of how we first became friends, right? Yeah. Um, and yeah, we just, first of all, we just, we just get along really well mm-hmm. as humans. Like forget, forget about us being musicians. We just 
get along really well as humans. So I think that's the most important thing. Mm-hmm. Um, like we were just hanging last night with some friends and we're like, yeah, we don't really argue. Like, <laughs> you yeah. know, like some couples have arguments. Like if we ever have a disagreement, it lasts for like 30 seconds. And right. For whatever reason, I mean, I just got, we just got lucky with each other. It's like, we just don't argue. Yeah. There's just, we don't yell. There's not a lot of me and my wife are the raising. same way. It's, you know, yeah, it's so, not, it's not that we don't have disagreements. We definitely do, but totally. It Everyone never, does. it never devolves into like yelling, screaming hours long. Uh, totally. You know, <laughs> it's just like, okay, somebody fucked up this. We, we misunderstood. <laughs> let's, let's just unpack this and calm down and, and we're good. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> so first of all, we're just really good friends to mm-hmm. begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say the, the other thing about us is, um, well, I'm a, oh man, I'm about to just like score some more points here. <laughs> I'm a working drummer, right? So <laughs> I, I, I mean, I play with a lot of different bands, a lot of different freelance stuff, mm-hmm. right? Just doing gigs all the time. Kate, I mean, she does that a little bit, but that's not really her focus. Right. Her focus is on her music, her compositions, her own voice. Whereas sometimes I, I feel like I'm, I don't know. I hate to get into like the craftsman versus artistic thing. No, get into it. You know, but like I'm like, I focus a lot on the craft of playing drums and well, you know, I'm still like obviously expressing myself, quotation marks, air quotes, everyone, right. Um, playing drums, but like she, like her focus is on her music. Mm -hmm. Mine's not right. So, that separation right there between her and I, that also keeps things super cool. Yeah, right? yeah. It's like even, even though you're, uh, on the one hand, your careers are extremely similar. You're both professional musicians. Totally. You play totally. in the same band. But on the other hand, you're, um, like the, the roles you play in music are very different. Totally, yeah. Um, She's a piano player, composer. Right. Focused on, on her original compositions. You're just a what? Right. I'm just a drummer. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I get to play in her band, right? Right, right. Um, the other thing is, the other thing that's super important, obviously, with relationships is we deeply respect each other. Mm-hmm. It's big time. Yeah. Um, if you respect the people you're playing with, you're probably going to play better. You know, you're going to make better music because of that. Yeah, yeah. Um, we've all heard bands where you can just tell that, you know, some people in the band might think that they're better than other people in the band you know so it comes out sounding that way <laughs> yep with some we've you know, been in some of those bands <laughs> we've all played in those bands so i think that's the one cool thing about her band is like i respect the fact that it's her band mm-hmm. you know like i just get to be the drummer in her band but she also respects you know me yeah as a person and as a musician right. and also our bass player cooper appelt yeah we're gonna talk about him He's a great bass player, right? Yeah, amazing. He's an, and he's a he's a great person. Yes. We so we all have this mutual respect, which makes us a strong unit. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um. So in terms of living with another musician or being married to, to uh, another musician, that's kind of how we make it happen. Yeah. You know, and she the other cool thing is, as opposed to like being married to someone who's not a musician at all, like she understands the lifestyle. Yes. Right. 
like the fact that what it's like one thirty on a Monday right now, it, uh, <laughs> West Coast time. Right. Like, I got a, I got a gig tonight. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. It's like for, I have a sound check at like four thirty. It's like I'm gonna be gone from four thirty until like probably midnight, and right. she gets that, yeah. and she's cool with that. Yeah, and my wife Christina is the same way. She's she's not a musician, but she's a former musician. She she did about half of a music degree in college and then wised up. Um, but <laughs> you know, uh, she's known me so long, and and she's so hip to like you said, just the musician lifestyle that that's not an issue. Um, I think the other the other pitfall that some couples experience if they're in the same field is 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 kind of jealousy or envy or insecurity if if one is doing better than the other right um, but it sounds like you've been able to avoid that totally yeah and for whatever reason that's just never been an issue with us yeah well maybe uh, the reason is that you're both doing pretty damn well so <laughs> yeah well perhaps perhaps yeah. um i mean i've also experienced that other side earlier in life mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. and, and it's not a good feeling you know yeah. So, um, which takes years to sort of get over and mature out of. Yeah. But um, it, you learn lessons that way. You know? Right. Yeah. Life lessons. The hard. <laughs> the hard way. <laughs> totally. So, right. So if you have uh, kids, you can you can set it up like Erskine did for you. Like here's something I learned in real life the hard way. <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna simulate a date right now, son. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yep yeah that's great so good um uh so you mentioned you mentioned cooper your bassist um and and i want to talk about him for a minute because we love we love giving amazing bassists uh uh their due here on the podcast um so talk a little bit about cooper it seems like you've formed a really great partnership with him yeah uh so okay let me talk about well cooper's about five foot no, six no, he's foot? like six know. three. He's what is he like? No, he. I guess he's kind of tall. <laughs> he's a tall drink of water, man. <laughs> tall, tall, skinny guy. He's a long, tall like Texan. Five, five eleven. You're really tall too. Yeah. No, Cooper uh, is well over six feet. But anyway, yeah, he's probably like six three or yeah. something. I don't know. What was I thinking? Uh, <laughs> anyway, um, so I met Cooper, uh, like right after he moved to L.A. Basically, we we got on the same gig. Uh, there was this place called Bigfoot Lounge, like out in uh, like Venice or something like that. We just like some random gig we played together there. Uh-huh. Um, and but here's the deal: so Kate went to that gig with me that night, and we pull up outside, and Cooper's loading his bass amp in, and she's like, "Oh my god, that's Cooper Appelt!" And I'm like, "Wait, you know this guy?" Like, she's <laughs> like, "Yeah, we went to North Texas together." Wow. You yeah. know, they they both went to UNT together. Um, and so I was like, oh, wow. Okay. So then I met him. And so that's how we first met was I played with him like on one of his first gigs after moving out here. Uh huh. And, um, he, you know, he's just a great bass player. He's like w- one of those bass players who he kind of just gets it. Like he, he always plays musically. Yeah. Got a great feel. Yeah. Great tone on upright and electric. Yeah. Bass. He's a double threat man on the upright and electric. Um, he's into lots of different styles of music, just yeah. as you and I are. Uh-huh. Um, so I, that's that's important, you know. And we have a lot of the same um, influences. Mm-hmm. 
you know, yeah. music. Like we one day we were just totally like dorking out over 311 and how much <laughs> we used to, you know, like <laughs> which some people are like, oh, I hate 311. But, you know, when we were <laughs> That's like we both just talked about 311 for like an hour one day and like we're like listening to it and right, like right. on long, you know, long road trips, you kind of get into it. So. Right. And that seems uh, like a that, that's that's not a conversation just about the music. That's like a bonding experience over the kinds of dudes you used to be. <laughs> totally totally like 311 chili pepper yeah all that yeah. but it's like we also love you know so many just other you know insert obscure jazz artist yeah. here you know yeah. kind of thing i love um, playing with with cooper on the on the occasions that i got to play with him and and he was one of those bassists uh where like if, if i found myself playing with him i was happy to just relinquish control and you know, put myself in his hands as the bassist. Um, there, you know, it's 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 not it's not too often that that I you know come across a bassist like that who I'm just like, man, you've got it. I am along on your ride. Um, did you did you experience that with him? Um, yeah. I mean, he definitely he has a, a really strong personality to begin with. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of like. When you play with him, you just automatically trust him, which yes. is important. The yes. bass, the bass player drummer relationship, mm-hmm. trust is like really important. Yeah, you know. Um, so yeah, from the very first time we played together, it was just like, oh, I trust you. Yep. I trust this. Mm-hmm. Uh, no matter what we're doing. Yeah. But it, Cooper's also a flexible player. Like when we play together. You know, it's like if if I if he wants to like sit on the beat a little more and like do the Pino Paladino thing, which he loves to do sometimes. Yeah. Like I he trusts that I'm going to keep it in the middle and not slow down with him or something, you know. Right. Like, <laughs> right. That, that sort of thing. Not to get like too dorky or whatever. But no, no. But that's, it's... that's kind of the thing. Like there's that sense of trust there where like if I feel him pulling on the beat, like I know he's not just dragging. I know he's doing it on purpose. Right. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it's one of those one of those things. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, and, you know, and he's a great reader. So there's that too. Like when we're we do gigs together all the time, where it's maybe it's not a trio Kate gig, mm-hmm. but we're just on a reading band or some show. Um, it's like I can trust that he's gonna nail it. You right. know, right, right. Uh, yeah, and, and same with me. Right, right. <laughs> And you know, like like we said, on top of being just uh, uh, an all around badass, he's an absolute sweetheart. Um, totally. Which oh man, yeah. Goes, it goes and it goes a long way. Like when you were talking about trust, like if you you know if you meet a guy on a gig, you know before you even play a note, if if you get a good vibe from him personally, and they seem like a humble, conscientious person, I think you're more likely to to be open yeah. to you know to what they totally. bring to the music. Yeah. Yeah. Good human, good musician, you know. Yeah. yeah. Those are important things. Cheers, Cooper. Yeah. Cooper, I'm gonna I'm gonna make sure you listen to this on our drive this week. <laughs> <laughs> oh wait, I don't know when this is coming out. Never mind. <laughs> Dang it. Ah. <laughs> well when whenever it comes out, you can just yeah. you can like you can bait and switch him. You'd be like, Hey man, come on over for a session or you know, just like strap yeah. him in the chair and listen to this. <laughs> 
And uh, and Trio Kate uh, just recorded or is recording a, a new record as we yeah. speak, kind of? A few, few days ago, yeah, we spent a couple of days um, recording an album, new album. Um, it's going to be a little different than her past albums because she's using... She used the Fender Rhodes on this album a lot. Uh, so, you know, normally she only plays piano. And that's right. been her thing right. since she was like four years old or something. Just only playing piano ever. Never really got into playing B3 or mm-hmm. anything. But yeah, so she's, she, you know, the past few months she's been spending a lot of time just getting into the, the Rhodes sound. and Cool. Um, yeah, so it actually turned, I mean... Surprisingly, no, not surprisingly, but I mean, I knew it was going to be great, but you know, it's kind of like, you don't, you don't know what to expect. Yeah. But the more you like work on the music and it sounds great. I'm, I'm excited for everyone to hear it. And talk a little um, bit about, about that music. Uh, it's, it's Kate's original trans, uh, not transcriptions, original <laughs> compositions. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, just in the, in the straight trio format. Um, uh, Cooper and- plays. Cooper plays a P bass in that band though. So oh, it's not wow. like it's not like a jazz trio. It's not like, you know, Oscar Peterson's trio or something. Right, right. Um there's sort of some different influences that go in into it. Uh obviously we we're all super into yeah, uh swinging jazz and you know, old, you know, just when you think of a jazz trio, like, yeah, we love all that. Bill Evans trio, yeah, you know, insert jazz trio here. Yeah, but we're also super into, you know, Headhunters, Herbie, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, we love the seventies. <laughs> <laughs> Who doesn't? Uh, we were listening to Romantic Warrior, you know, the Return to Forever album. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> Lenny, guys, Lenny White is just shredding it. <laughs> Go listen to that album. Um, so we have so many different influences. Our, our last album, we did. Um, it was called Casual, mm-hmm. and we did a bunch of um, covers, basically. Not not standards, covers. Right, right. <laughs> but we did Misty, so it's like a standard. It's like jazz people call them standards, but pop people say, oh, you covered it. You know? Right, right. <laughs> it's just kind of like one of those interesting words. It's like, doesn't doesn't really matter what you call it. You're just playing somebody else's song. Right. Uh, so... <laughs> So yeah, we did like a Chili Peppers tune on the last one. We did a No Doubt song. We did uh, Michael Jackson, yeah. Lady in My Life. You know? Yeah. Um, so this new record is all original stuff. This one's all original stuff. Uh, kind of gets into some different areas. Like the only thing that we did on the record, and I think it's going to be on the record. You know, it's always that kind of thing. Like, do we want to put this on this record? Mm-hmm. But Kate did a really cool, haunting version of Pure Imagination. Cool. Um, and it's really spacious. Like if you listen to most of our music, it's like up tempo or kind of like pocket. Like yeah, there's a, there's some different feels we get into, but this one's just super ambient and sort of haunting. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, in that a cool, cool way, she really used the the sound. She explored the space. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I hope it. I hope we put it on there. It sounds yeah. really cool. Yeah. But yeah, we recorded. We did this album at this really cool studio in los angeles called sphere huh um it's only been it's only it's only been open maybe like a little over a year oh wow it's in burbank it used to be this place called royal tone Mm -hmm. um 
But Sphere was a studio that was in the UK. I believe I think it was in London before. And um, the story was that like the owner of the the studio in London, he like came to LA like on vacation and you know, love the weather. <laughs> and then it was like, okay, I'm moving the studio to LA. So, oh, man. and, uh, you know, it's like this, they did, they recorded like Adele's. Yeah. Huge hits there. Like, yeah, yeah. it was like one of those places in London. Um, but boy, it's a really great studio. Um, just giant room. Yeah. For the drums. Ugh. Not like, not like bigs, not like overly cavernous sounding, but just a nice big room sound. Yeah. Lots of air. Um, yeah, and Rich Breen was engineering. He's just a fantastic engineer. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it was it was a really fun experience. I can't wait for it to come out. It probably won't come out until March yeah. 2018. Yeah, but, uh, these things take time. Yep, yep. So yeah, it was fun. Uh, and you'll be touring on the back of that a, a good bit, won't you? Yeah, probably. Yeah. I mean, we, we tend to stay pretty busy with that. Yeah. Um, uh, yep. Working, working drummer, uh, lifestyle. Yep. Know. Yep. <laughs> it's never boring. It's are never... we up to like $20 now? I don't know. <laughs> it might be, it might be 25. I'm not sure. Okay. Cool. <laughs> so the book is uh jazz drum set etudes, a guide for developing solo technique and melodic vocabulary available at uh, the internet. <laughs> <laughs> I've been there. I've been anywhere. This place called the internet. Yeah. Um, well, Alfred music publishes it so you can get it on their website. You can get it on Amazon. You can get it on my website, jakereedmusic.com. Cool. Um, yeah, I'm working on the volume two right now, which There's will be a incorporate. Two. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm working on that, which incorporates other rhythms besides quarter notes and eighth notes. <laughs> Good. You know, wait, other wait, there are other rhythms? Uh, well, you have to stay tuned to find out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Man, thanks so much for, uh, for talking with me, man. It was, it was great to see you and great to catch up. Uh, I hope you sell a, a bazillion copies of this book. I'm going to get one. Perhaps. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've, I think some people are starting to use it at their colleges. and Nice. Stuff nice. like that. So cool. Tina Tina Raymond was telling me that she's using it awesome. at first. So yeah, um, yeah. So it's cool. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Jake. Great talking with you. Thanks, man. Jake Reed, solid dude, great drummer. There's a video of Trio Kate on the page for this episode. Check that out. And once again, his book is Jazz Drum Set Etudes, Volume One. There's a link to that on uh, the episode page as well. As I mentioned in the intro, there's some bonus content on our website, which consists of some of our guests talking about their top five Desert Island records. Jake had some great picks in his list, and uh, we also kind of went off on another tangent about time and feel and the the craft of studio drumming. Uh, So give that a listen. You can access that and the rest of our bonus content by donating any amount to our Patreon page. Once again, that's patreon.com slash working drummer. Don't forget to follow us on social media, share pics and videos of your gigs using the hashtag WorkingDrummer, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, and help us out by leaving a rating and review there. Thanks as always to Mike Jackson for his technical assistance. Matt Krause is back with you next week. Thanks for listening. Cheers. Cheers.